Hey, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Hey, today is going to be a little bit different than normal. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more of a PG-13 uh, message. Uh, that's, again, this is not normal for us to have that. Uh, but because of that, because of the subject matter, we're going to talk about marriage and intimacy. I want to provide all parents uh, with the space for their children to go uh, because of this uh, uh, delicate issue that we're going to be talking about. So if you have a teen or a preteen or maybe a child in here and you think it would be best for them to go have some fun, uh, play some games in the other room. We've got Kelly back there. Everybody wave at Kelly. She's back there. Hey, uh, So, hey, if you've got a child, uh, preteen, teen, think maybe, hey, um, they don't need to hear this. They don't need to have this conversation just yet. Uh, they can go to Kelly. They're going to go have fun in class uh, and so, hey, uh, go find her if you, if you think that would be best for your family. We love having our teens and preteens in here in service with us. But today, uh, today's message might be a little bit past where they're at right now, right? So uh, any young people need to step out, right? Feel free. Kelly's going to be hanging out back there, right? Going once, twice, sold, all right? So, hey, if you're in here. You made your bed, now you got to lie in it. We're stuck with the snow. Hey, uh, hey we're going to talk about something uh, a little bit more intense today, a little bit more. We're going to be talking about sex. Okay, so hey, but we want to not be informed from what our world has to say, but be informed by what God's word has to say. And so let's get our hearts ready uh, for a move of God today. Would you just uh, put your arms out with your palms up, uh, close your eyes, take a deep breath. Uh, and remember that God is just as near as the air you're breathing. Let's pray. Uh, God, uh, would you guide us closer to you? Uh, help our minds to put away the distractions uh, of the coming week, uh, to put away the frustrations of this past week. We want to fully focus on you. Uh, we come empty with nothing to offer but surrender. Fill us up as only you can. Holy Spirit, move in here today. With power, we believe that in advance, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, we've got a lot of material to cover today, and so we're going to just hop straight into our text for uh, this series. We're going to be in Ephesians 5. I'm going to read these uh, 11 verses here. It's Ephesians 5, verse 21. It says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, pause real quick. This paragraph we're about to read, the, the heading in most Bibles, in my Bible, it says, spirit-filled Relationships, right? So we're talking about spirit filled relationships. Uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. The church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right, we've read that every week. Uh, in a spirit-filled marriage, uh, I want to make sure we emphasize that first verse there. We have mutual submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
So it says, wives, submit to your husbands. And it says, husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Jesus gave up his life for the church. Uh, man, you have a responsibility to care and to love your spouse. Uh, if you do your part in loving your wife like Jesus loves his church, things are gonna go better for you in your marriage. Uh, too often this passage is focused, uh, it gets a focus on uh, wives submitting to your husband. It says that twice, it, do, it does say that. Uh, but for the men, it actually gives a lot more detail on what loving your wife looks like. And so I just wanna speak to the men in this room for just a second. Jesus gave it all for his church. He gave his church everything it needs to flourish, everything. He withholds nothing from his church. He's all in on his church. Man, that's the type of love you need to show your wife. When you love your wife like that, when you are all in, I'm giving her everything she needs to flourish. I'm all in on this relationship. I'm all in on her flourishing. When you love your spouse like that, when you love your wife like that, it's crazy how those concerns over submission really don't become an issue. And submission is not blindly following and man, it's not ruling with an iron fist. It's simply trusting. It's trusting the other person. And when you exhibit that kind of love, it becomes really easy to trust. So in this series, we've been looking at four common reasons uh, that people get divorced, that marriage is in a divorce. Uh, the first one was conflict. We talked about that, how we've got to fight fair. Talked about finances in week two. Uh, you need to get your house in order. Talked about a lack of support or how to support your spouse last week. And today we're going to talk about uh, intimacy. I read the last one. So I said it once, all right. No kids in here anymore. Well, today we're talking about sex. Uh, it's intentional that uh, we're finishing up on sex uh, because the principles we've looked at so far really do build up to this point. All right. Uh, if you don't have conflict down, uh, you're, you're not fighting fair. If you don't have your finances where they need to be, you're kind of struggling over that. And you're not supporting your spouse the way that you need to be supporting them. Uh, sex is going to be a challenge, right? Because you are carrying a lot of stress into the bedroom. And so this series, we've really built up to this message. And I want to make sure that we've, we've got it all going in the right direction. It's, it's built up on this. We can't just hop in here and ignore everything we've talked about for the past three weeks. Uh, we've made it a point to have you praying for your spouse daily in, in one of these prayer journals. Uh, and so the, the reason is because couples who pray together stay together. That's just, it's true. You can see that in the stats. And I also believe it's true that couples who play together uh, stay together. And so sex is a gift from God. And as we look at having a healthy and strong marriage, like sex is a part of that equation. It just is. And now here's the deal. Talking about sex can be a bit awkward. So can we just get the awkward out of the way right now, right? Let me start with an awkward experience that Kelsey and I had. <clears throat> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw how big some of y'all's eyes got. This is not a bedroom story. Side note, what happens in the bedroom between you and your spouse, that's between you and your spouse, no one else. Here's the awkward story. Uh, when Kelsey and I uh, were engaged, we did some premarital counseling uh, we had our Sunday school teacher at the church we were at while we were in Bible college, who was also a professor of mine. He did a lot of the pastoral theology classes at the Bible college I went to. Uh, they led our premarital counseling. It was him and his wife. And uh, it was several weeks. I don't remember exactly how long. But we got to the subject of sex, and they handed us a book and said, hey, read these few chapters. We've underlined some parts that we find helpful. <clears throat> Underlined some parts that we find helpful. This is the awkward part, right? Uh, and so uh, the underlined parts were as follows. This is from my 60-year-old uh, Sunday school teacher and professor, right? Uh, lay down a towel so you don't make a mess. That's underlined. 
Um, we're getting the awkward out of the way, y'all. We're getting it out so we can have real conversations. Uh, try flipping around so your feet are at the head of the bed. Pushing off the headboard creates more power. <laughs> okay? Yeah, no. Uh, and then it says, uh, the first time, gentlemen, you're going to have an orgasm quickly. That was underlined. And then it said, the first time, your wife is probably not going to have an orgasm. I am sitting alone in my college dorm room reading this, and my face is getting so red. It's awkward. And I understand it can be a bit awkward to talk about sex in this setting. Like, if I'm reading this alone and my face is getting red, like, it's awkward. Why would we, why would we talk about it? If it's awkward, why would we do it? Why would we have this at all? And there's two reasons we have to talk about sex. Our world is so loud about their sexual ethics that to be silent would be wrong. The world standard for sex is if it's two consenting adults, go for it. And we cannot, the church cannot be silent where our culture is loud. Okay? We, we have to be, uh, we can't be silent where our culture is loud. And then God's word speaks clearly on sex. That's the second reason. I know it's awkward, but we can't shy away from topics because it makes us uncomfortable. When God's word speaks to anything, we have to take it seriously. And before we go wade out into what the Bible has to say about sex, I need to give this uh, disclaimer because we've got a, a good group of people in here. Uh, by the numbers uh, or the stats, uh, there are people in this room uh, who have experienced uh, sexual abuse. Uh, and if that's you, you probably have some mixed feelings uh, about intimacy because of a wrong that's happened to you. And I just want to say I'm so sorry for the pain that you've had to endure and that there is healing available for you in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but I believe it is available. It, it, there is healing available in Jesus. I also know that uh, there's, with a group this size, there's going to be some, many in here, honestly, who have, you have a sexual history that you are not proud of. Uh, maybe it's a history of promiscuity or, or maybe you've just done things that you're like, I wish I didn't do that. You carry some regret with regard to your sex life. Now, as we walk through what God's word says about sex, you, you might sense this, uh, have a sense of shame welling up inside of you. And I want you just to, to either one of those, if you just hear me on this, you are not damaged goods. If that thought comes up inside of you, that is not from the Lord. He wants you to know the truth so that you can be set free. And the truth is regardless of your past failures or the hurt people have caused to you, God offers freedom. He is bigger than your sin. Your sin doesn't make him want to back away from you. Actually, sin broke his heart so much that he sent his son. He couldn't take it anymore. He sent his son, Jesus. And we're no longer defined by our sin. We're no longer defined by our failures, but we're defined by his grace. So whatever your story is, you're not too far gone. God can redeem your story. The truth is God created sex, uh, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's created by him. And so uh, we're going to speak candidly about sex, but I also want to be clear on the context. And so when I, when I say sex being good, here's, here's the circle that I'm drawing. Here's the boundaries uh, for it to be God-honoring sex. I am always talking about uh, consensual sex in a marriage between a husband and a wife, Right? It's, it's consensual. It, it's not forced. Uh, if it's in uh, the covenant of marriage, uh, you have made a commitment to one another for better or worse. Right? It's, it's within that covenant of marriage. So sex that is forced is abuse. All right? That's true whether it's inside or outside of marriage. No means no. And sex that is outside of marriage is not the way, is not God-honoring. Right? And so if you aren't married, don't do married people things. Right? 
Now, everyone here gets the first thing I said, right? Like, hey, no means no. Uh, but I might get a little pushback on the second, all right? And, and the reason why two consenting adults shouldn't have sex outside of marriage isn't STDs or unplanned pregnancy, although that, that might be a part of the equation. It's because God's way is better than your way. And God doesn't tell us to, do, to, to not do something to withhold a good thing from us. No, he tells us no to protect us. And I love it when uh, sociology catches up to theology, when science and data show what the Bible is already saying. Uh, did you know if, if you were looking for a marriage that lasts a lifetime, uh, the fewer sexual partners that you've had, uh, the lower your chances are of a divorce. Uh, to say it another way, to look at it this way, the higher your body count, the higher your chances are for a divorce. The category in the data with the lowest divorce rate is that of zero sexual partners before their marriage. That's the exact opposite of what the world says. Right? You've got to test drive the car before you buy it. Right, it's kind of the thought with our world. What a terrible way to talk about your spouse. They are not an inanimate object. They are a person created in the image of God. You need to treat them as such. Okay, so anything outside of the circle of consensual sex in a biblical marriage, anything outside of that, that's not what God designed. So uh, biblically speaking, pornography is a no-go. Sex before marriage is a no-go. Sex with anyone you did not walk down the aisle with, that, that is not the good thing that God intended. That's the circle that God honoring sex fits into you. Right, and so, so now, if, that, if that's what we're talking about, now I want to talk about love as it pertains to the Bible. Um, this is such a cool thing that, that God laid out for us. Um, and this was just really kind of blew my mind as I discovered this and people were showing me this and researching. Um, in Hebrew, there are three words for love. And each one of these has its own flavor. Uh, the same uh, way we use love in English, it could mean different levels of love. Right? Like I love tacos and I love my wife, but those are to two totally different types of love. But we use the same word. In Hebrew, they have three words for love and they all have, it kind of helped differentiate the different types or levels of love. And so the first one is raya, love. Raya, right? And it's Hebrew, so I could be mispronouncing that totally wrong, but that's how it's transliterated, that's how I'm gonna say it, raya, all right? It's, it's companionship or, or friendship. Uh, and so you have relationships with your friends at, at this level, this raya level of love. And so marriages, they start out at this level, right? Uh, when you're just a friend, this is the, this is the first date, right? When you go on a first date, uh, it's where you try to keep all the crazy tucked away, right? Like, like at this level, you're not sharing all your secrets, right? It's just a friend. Uh, this is somebody you enjoy spending time with. And, and not in the bedroom, but just doing the things of life with, uh, with a friend. So you're sharing a meal, you're playing a game, you're watching a show. That's kind of that first level of love. Raya. That's the first level. It's, it's not uh, romance, it's friendship. That's what raya is. And then the next level is ahava, love. Ahava. So raya was companionship, friendship, just enjoying one another. Uh, ahava, this is commitment. Right, this is commitment level. So in friendship, right, you've got the, the crazy tucked away. Uh, you're not sharing uh, them with them everything. At ahava, the crazy is out there, right? And yet, there is no place else you'd rather be, right? It is a commitment to the other person regardless of the situation. This is a true commitment. 
And so uh, this is uh, commitment. So this could still be a friend. This doesn't have to necessarily be romance, but you're committed to the other person. You've seen they're crazy, and you haven't pushed away, right? You've seen they're crazy, but I'm, I'm still with you. I'm with you. Regardless of the situation, this is a true commitment. Uh, I heard a pastor once, he was talking about his premarital counseling, and uh, he, he said, uh, he was with this man giving him the counseling, and he said, he expressed some concern, like, hey, we just keep having the same fight. Like, every five to six weeks, we have the same fight, and uh, I just don't know if she's the right one. Like, is this what I want to do? And the guy who was counseling him said, you're going to fight with someone for the rest of your life. Do you want it to be her? Right? Like, there's just some truth to that, right? Uh, Tim Keller, he wisely once said, everyone marries the wrong person right? because there is no right person. There's, there's no perfect person. We are all sinners. No one is perfect. Uh, your spouse is jacked up, and so are you. Like just, that's just how it is. Two sinners. So the idea of finding the, the right person is a myth. The question isn't, is this the right person? It's, is this the person I'm going to commit to no matter what? Is this the person I'm going to fight with for the rest of my life? Now, hopefully the distance in those fights uh, gets wider. Instead of five to six weeks, maybe you're pushing out to 10 to 12 weeks, right? There's some progress there. You're going to fight with someone. Do you want it to be them? That's that ahava love. It's a commitment. Uh, this is the part of the vows. It's the for better or worse, right? For richer or poor in sickness and health. If you take away that kind of commitment and take away that part of the vows, you're sitting there at that marriage saying, uh, this doesn't stand a chance, right? It's why God calls marriage a covenant, not a contract. When you have vows like that, that's covenantal language, better or worse, richer or poor, uh, you're mine and I'm yours no matter what. There's nowhere else I'd rather be that kind of commitment. That's, that's covenantal language. So in a contract, uh, you give a list of desired goods or services, and then you receive a payment for said goods or services. That's what a contract is. And we don't, we don't say this, our vows are that covenantal language, but unfortunately, a lot of people in their marriage, they live out of that contractual language. Just imagine what those vows would sound like if they maybe were honest or said what they were thinking, that contractual language. Uh, I promise, this is the dude talking, I promise to bring home a six-figure salary so long as you keep the house clean. The wife says, I'll let you go hunt every weekend in deer season so long as I get a week-long beach vacation in the summer, right? I will be with you so long as you never get sick. I hate the hospitals, right? If you had contractual language like that uh, in a marriage, in a ceremony, you'd, have, you'd be getting booed from the crowd, right? Because that's awful. That's not what a marriage is. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. There's commitment. Ahava, love, is that picture of Commitment. I'm committed to you. There's no other place I'd rather be. Even when it's not going well, I'm with you. You've got uh, Rava, love, that's companionship. You've got Ahava, love, that's commitment. And lastly, the, the third level, you've got Dode. Dode. So you've got uh, companionship, commitment, and this is the consummation. This is the romantic side of love. This is, uh, there's a book called The Mingling of Souls. It's, it's a great read. Uh, and it's, this is the mingling of souls, the, the, the union of two becoming one. This is what we think of when we think of love in the context of a marriage. And here's something that I did not know. Uh, every time this Hebrew word dod is mentioned without ahava or, or rava, it's when it's without those other two levels of love, 
it's translated as adultery or sexual immorality. I want you to think about that. These are the building blocks of love in a marriage. Uh, it is to have companionship, right? You gotta, you gotta start with that companionship, then it's to have commitment, and then you get to consummation. They build on each other. When you have that though, that romantic love without that commitment and that companionship, you get things flipped. In our culture, what they want, they want consummation without commitment or companionship. So every time Doe is mentioned without those other two levels, it's translated as adultery or sexual immorality. And I just want to say, like, consummation without companionship, it makes sex simply a physical exchange. That's what we're trying to do, and that's not the way we were designed to operate. You can try, but it's end up uh, frustrating. It's going to hurt you. It's going to harm the person that you're with. We have to start with companionship and then commitment, and then we get to that consummation level. That's how God designed us. That's why every time that consummation level, that word, is dode, is mentioned without those other two, it's translated adultery, right? It's wrong to try to go there without having these other two levels. And so I think, I think this is true for everybody in here. Uh, your sex life, I'm in, the con- in this context of uh, consenting adults in a marriage, right? Your sex life is a reflection of the intimacy you have with your spouse. So a, a sexless marriage is not a healthy marriage. Uh, I love how the Apostle Paul says it plainly in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, I'm just going to read one verse here. It says, uh, verse 5, Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan would not be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I don't know if you caught that. Don't withhold uh, yourself from each other unless you are doing that so that you can both pray more. Uh, if you're married in here, you've probably refrained from sex from your spouse at one point or another. I doubt it was so you could pray more, right? <laughs> I bet there was something wrong, something wrong with that companionship or commitment because those things build. But I'm not naive enough to think there are people who are sitting here right now who are lacking that intimacy with their spouse. So I believe that the, the, in, a, in a marriage, the, your sex life is a reflection of the intimacy you have with your spouse. Couples who play together, stay together. And if you aren't playing together, why is that? Like, like why, why is that not happening? And so uh, here's some, some common reasons there's no spark uh, in the bedroom. Um, and before I get into these, I definitely want to say, I just, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but I think, I think it's worth saying that, that men, uh, you typically want sex more than women. Like, I'm not, huh. all right, all right. <sighs> Anyways. That was my dad, so I told him not to say amen today, but somehow I got out of there. Um, but just the truth, like, I think painting with a broad brush, uh, men typically want uh, that more than women, more frequently than women. In most marriages, it is the men who instigate sex, right? They're, they're starting that. And because of those two facts, uh, it's not uncommon in our world to hear something along the lines of, my wife is just cold to me, or she's, she's so indifferent uh, to the bedroom, right? Uh, she's so indifferent to, to being intimate at that level. And um, that's like a very common thing, I feel like, for, for men to just say in relationships out, uh, like locker room talk, what have you. Uh, and it, my first thought when I hear that, it just comes, I remember that scene in Remember the Titans, uh, when he says, attitude reflects leadership, Captain. Remember that part? My wife's, man, you are the leader of your home. 
You are to lead your home in love. And if you've missed that, you've missed everything. Uh, there's an there's a, a old pastor, his name's J. Vernon McGee. He says, when a man says he has a cold wife, it's because she has a cold husband. You don't get consummation without commitment and companionship. It doesn't work like that. And so when things aren't going the way you want them to go in a marriage, the first person you need to look to is you, right? And I think specifically husbands, there's, we've read Ephesians 5, you are the leader of your home. And that means uh, not that you get to rule with an iron fist, that means you have a responsibility to care for, to love, to nurture your wife and your family. So the question we all need to answer is, am I being the husband that Jesus wants me to be? Am I being the wife that Jesus wants me to be. And, and I want to make sure we start with Jesus because the practical tips we're going to get to just as far as helping each other communicate, not, they're of no use if we don't have Jesus. I know I've said that every single week and it's just so true. We need Jesus more than we need any of this other stuff. If we don't start there, we've missed everything. Are you being the husband? Are you being the wife that Jesus wants you to be? Remember, they submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We have to start there. So some practical reasons that uh, you might be in an intimacy drought in your marriage. Uh, reason number one, you're overdrawn in your love account. All right. I don't know if you've ever heard this type of language before. Every time you do something that your spouse enjoys or likes, that's a deposit into the love account, right? And, like they enjoy that, that's good. Every, th- every time you do something dumb or annoying, that's a withdrawal from the love account. Right? Now, hey, there's going to be times where you and your spouse are just simply not going to be on the same page. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. But again, you're two imperfect people. There's never a right person. You're just never going to be on the same page. Uh, I, like, just full disclosure, I could not count the number of times my wife has asked me a serious uh, question and she's expecting a serious answer and instead I offer her a joke. She never laughs when I offer that. <laughs> you know? right, here's, you're just not on the same page. That, like, that happens sometimes. But I think usually the issue in this area, being overdrawn, is not uh, just being on the same page. Like sometimes you just miss each other. That's just a part of life. But, but there's other times it's not investing in your spouse how they need it. We, we talked briefly about this last week, but your spouse is wired differently than you. Uh, I would just encourage you, the five love languages by Gary Chapman, a great resource to help discover how your spouse is wired uh, and to love them in a way that they feel the most loved. Like there's, there's five different ways where it's not that these are bad or that, that anything's lower, but there's some people they just get filled up differently than the way you get filled up. So if you're all about physical touch and she's about acts of service and neither person meets the other one where they're at, guess what? You're both going to be frustrated. Don't carry a negative balance in that love account. Right? Figure out how you need to serve and love your spouse and do that. Not the way that you wish they would serve you, but the way that they are wired, the way that they feel love. Because when you carry that negative balance, it puts unnecessary stress and strain on your relationship. Uh, You are to serve and love your spouse, even if it's ways that are different from what you would want. It's not about you. You remember that? In a marriage, it's all about us. It's two becoming one. So make deposits in there for your spouse, not because you're planning a big withdrawal, right? You know, hey, I got I to gotta make these deposits because I got a golf trip next weekend. I got to do this so that I can do that. No, 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 no. Make deposits because you love them. 
You love your wife. You want her to be filled up. You want this to be a life-giving marriage. Uh, another reason, uh, so the, the first reason is just, hey, you're carrying a negative account balance in the love account. Another reason for an intimacy drought is, hey, you stopped dating your spouse. You stopped dating your spouse. Uh, you need to continue to date your spouse. When two people are dating, they are just finding out more and more with each other. They are curious. They ask questions. Uh, like I remember when Kelsey and I first started dating, it was like, we're going to go to Walmart. We're just going to walk around Walmart. We don't have any money. We're going to walk around Walmart. And it was like, spent time with my, my, my girlfriend walking around Walmart. Like we just enjoy, you're just so excited to be with each other. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Is that popular? We're so, we just love each other. They can't do anything wrong. Right? Do you remember when you first started dating your spouse? You were so excited. All you wanted to do was spend time with them. Guys, when you were dating, you were doing everything you could to woo her. It's a nice dinner. I'm going to be clean shaven. I got the cologne on. I'm open. Yes, ma'am. I'm opening up the door. And you did that. Right? We, we don't do that so that we get. You did that because she's worth it. Because she deserves your best. She does. You're going to lead like Jesus. That's what Jesus, he gave his best. And when you were dating, you gave your best because you wanted to lock that down, right? You wanted to put a ring on it. And here's the problem with a lot of us guys. We think too simply. Like once we walk down the aisle and we say those vows, we're like, I did it. I've made it to the top of the mountain. And so instead of continuing to pursue our wife, we settle. We get comfortable. We get complacent. And I don't know about you, but those are two words I'd never want to describe my marriage as. I don't want to describe my marriage as comfortable or complacent. I want my marriage to be great, strong, growing, spicy, right? Like I, I want, uh, if we quit dating our spouse, good things can quickly fade away. I want you to think about your walk with Jesus. If the moment you became a Christian, Jesus quit pursuing relationship with you, that would be rough. It'd be like, hey, you kind of abandoned me here, Right? But it's the exact opposite. Jesus pursues us, he saves us, and then he sanctifies us, right? He makes us more into his image. And even when we mess up, even when we make mistakes, he doesn't ever back away from us. He always moves towards us, even though we're already his. In your marriage, don't ever quit pursuing your spouse. You need to keep growing. And there's, without a doubt, there's seasons where it's going to be harder to date your spouse. I got three kids. I know it ain't easy, right? There's always something going on. There's always a reason to quit dating your spouse. There's always a reason to not have date night. I know many in here, you have kids, you're in a full season of life. And I just want to remind you that those kids will eventually go and your spouse is going to stay. And I, like, I love my kids so much. But there's going to be a day when they leave the house and it's just going to be me and Kelsey. And when that day comes, I don't want to be living with someone who I don't even know anymore because we spent the last 20 years raising kids and cohabitating together instead of growing closer to each other, truly becoming one. When the kids are gone, I don't want a roommate. I have to figure out that we, if we even still like each other. Right? I want to be ready for that next phase of my life with the love of my life. Keep pursuing your spouse, regardless of the season you're in. Regardless of the season, you need to keep pursuing your spouse. Don't carry a negative love account balance and never stop dating your spouse. Pursue them. Gentlemen, woo your wife. Don't just think, I got this. That's mine now. No, that's not how Jesus wants you to be the husband to your wife. Love 
her like Christ loved her, to give everything for her. I want to wrap up by just saying that, that sex is a gift given by God. I know there's some old school uh, churches, they say, that, hey, sex, that's just for procreation. That's got a purpose, it's procreation. Uh, you can say amen on this part, but sex is also for pleasure. <laughs> Maybe it's not for pleasure, right? <laughs> um, I, I could go with some science here. Right, there, like, you want to talk about nerve endings on the male and female anatomy that just prove, like, hey, there's things there that feel good, and uh, there's a God who designed that, right? Uh, God created sex, and it's a good thing, and it's not just for procreation. It is for uh, pleasure. And Song of Solomon, you see uh, these two lovers, and they are going back and forth uh, talking to each other. And it doesn't read like a manual for procreation, but more like the intimacy we desire in marriage. They are finding pleasure in one another. This is a gift from God. I'm going to read uh, Song of Solomon, uh, verse chapter 4, and I'm going to read these just four, a handful of verses here. It says, this is the man speaking at first. It says, you are beautiful, my darling. Beautiful beyond words. Uh, he's going to use some imagery here that maybe we don't translate with, we don't get it, but he's, tell, he's complimenting his wife. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep, freshly shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with its twin. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, shielded with, uh, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. Breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. Before the dawn breeze blows and the night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. Beautiful in every way. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me. Come down from Mount Armeria to the peaks of Sinair and Hermon where the lions in their dens and the leopards live among the hills. You have captured my heart my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes, with the single jewel of your necklace. Your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Your love is better than wine. Your, fragrant, your perfume more fragrant than spices. Your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. Your clothes are scented like the cedars of Lebanon. You are my private garden, my treasure, my bride. A secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Your Thy shelter, a paradise of pomegranates with rare spices, henna and nard, nard and saffron, fragrant calmets and cinnamon with the trees of frankincense, myrrh, aloe, and every other lovely spice. You are a garden fountain, a well of fresh water streaming down from Lebanon's mountains. That's what he says to his wife. And then she responds to him in verse 16, says, Awake, north wind, rise up, blow south, blow on my garden and spread its fragrance all around. Come into your garden, my love. Taste its finest fruits. Sex is a gift from God. And in, in that context, in that circle we're talking about, it is to be enjoyed and it is supposed to be pleasurable. It's a gift from God. And did you notice how this man describes his lover? He starts with her head and he works his way from top down. He starts with her eyes and he ends with her thighs. Right. He is speaking in a way to woo his young bride. As he said there, his private garden. There is pleasure and enjoyment there. 
And after his words of pursuing his spouse, trying to woo her, his lover responds in verse 16 and says, come into your garden, my love. Taste its finest fruits. He pursued his wife and she responds in kind. He didn't just jump into the action. He speaks to her. He compliments her. He doesn't just say, dang, right? He, he pursues her. He tries to woo her. He loves her. Man, your wife is a crockpot, not a microwave, right? You're a microwave. She's a crockpot. A microwave gets things hot in a hurry. A crockpot takes a little while to warm up. In this passage, he is complimenting and pursuing his lover. And then he waits for the green light before he jumps in. Slow down. Be with your wife uh, intimately. And, and just hear me this. That's more than just physical touch. That's being there emotionally and spiritually for her as well. Now, the timeline isn't uh, given, isn't exact, but, but scholars believe that in the course of their relationship, uh, there's about 20 years roughly between chapter 4 and then chapter 7 uh, in Song of Solomon. So decades later, right, here's how he describes uh, his lover. We've got nine verses here. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O queenly maiden. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a skilled craftsman. Your navel is a perfectly formed goblet filled with mixed wine. Between your thighs lies a mound of wheat bordered with lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is as beautiful as an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the sparkling pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabina. Your nose is as fine as the Tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus. Your head is as majestic as Mount Carmel, and the sheen of your hair radiates royalty. If you said that to your wife, she'd probably go take a shower. Uh, Anyways, it says, the king is held captive by its tresses. Oh, how beautiful you are, how pleasing, my love, how full of delight. You will blender like a palm tree. Your breasts are like clusters of a fruit. And I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breast be like grape clusters and the fragrance of your breath like apples. Verse 9 says, may your kisses be exciting as the best wine. And then it's got a little like dash there. Uh, he is describing her. He's, this decades later, he's still trying to woo and pursue his lover. And verse 9 it ends abruptly. He's going to say more. She interrupts him with verse 10. She says, yes, wine that goes down smoothly for my lover, gently flowing over lips and teeth. I am my lover's and he claims me as his own. Come, my love, let's go out to the field, spend the night among the wildflowers. Let's get up early, go to the vineyards to see the grapevines that have budded. If the blossoms have opened and if the pomegranates have bloomed, there I will give you my love. Where the mandrakes give off their fragrance and the finest fruits are at our door. New delights as well as old, which I have saved for you, my lover. There's intimacy there. There's companionship there. There's commitment there. The first time he describes her, he goes from the top down. This time, it's decades later, and he describes her from the bottom up. He starts with the feet. His love for her has not faded, but it has changed. And the change that has happened, it's not a bad thing. I want you to think about how much life has happened to them in these 20 years. And yet, here is a man still seeking to woo and pursue his wife. The way he sees her has completely flipped. 
but he has not changed his love one bit. Where does that leave us? And I just want to give you a, a, a clear next step. Uh, pursue your spouse. Pursue companionship with them. You need to be their friend, right? You need to just do things that friends do together. You need to pursue commitment with them, right? To remind them that there's no place else I'd rather be. I know things aren't going the way we want them to right now, but we're in this together. And if you pursue those two things, the consummation will happen. So the next step is uh, go home and be your spouse's best friend. Enjoy each other. Remind them of the commitment you've made. There's no place else I'd rather be. And as you pursue your spouse like that, even with all of their imperfections, it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us. He always pursues us. Even when we're an absolute mess, he doesn't run away from us. He loves us right where we're at. And he leads us to grow. He doesn't just keep us there. He encourages us along the way. Pursue your spouse. Your sex life is a reflection of the intimacy in your marriage. Couples who play together, stay together. We're not trying to just get that consummation. We need to have companionship, commitment. And that last level is going to happen as we do those two things. Let's pray.